Hey folks, and welcome to episode 195 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here, he's going to spend much of the time dealing with the imagery of the flock and how it relates to people, and specifically the sacrificial imagery of the flock in Genesis 26 and 27. This is an episode, like many others, where we really encourage you to listen all the way to the end, as this talk contains many details that become very clear in the last couple of minutes. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this episode, and as always, thank you so much for listening. We're in Genesis 26, 23 to 28, 9. We kind of surveyed this story, and it's the story of Rebecca's deception of Isaac. The story of Jacob and Esau coming and getting a blessing from Isaac. I think I'd just like to just talk a little bit about the passage and some themes in it, and then when I get the notes to you next week, we'll be able to go over it a little bit more systematically. The story is included by statements about Esau's wives. Chapter 26, 34, Esau was 40 years old. He took two wives. They caused bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, that tells you, once again, that Esau is a profane man, and he has no business in inheriting. And the whole overall passage ends with the same kind of statement in chapter 28, 6 to 9, and Esau sees that Jacob has gone to get a wife and his parents don't like his wives, then he goes and gets a third wife, which still is even worse. What is happening here, let me just read the main part of the passage, just the opening verses, and then we can talk about it a little bit. Chapter 27, 1. Now when Yitzchak was old and his eyes had become too dim for seeing, and he called aside his elder son, and he said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And he said, And now here, I have grown old and do not know the day of my death. So now, pray, pick up your weapons, your hanging quiver and your bow, and go into the field and hunt me down some hunted game and make me a delicacy such as I love and bring it to me and I will eat it, that I may give you my own blessing before I die. And Rifkah was listening as Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went off into the fields to hunt down hunted game to bring. And Rifkah said to Yaakov, her son, saying, Behold, I was listening as your father spoke to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me some hunted game and make me a delicacy, and I will eat it. And I will give you blessing before Yahweh, before my death. Now there's a contrast here that you might not pick up, but it's very important. Isaac says, I will eat it and I will give you my own blessing before I die. Rebecca paraphrases that. She says, well, when she reports it, she reports him as saying, I will eat it and give you blessing before Yahweh, before my death. And we might say that those are equivalent, but I don't think they are. In fact, I think the heart of this passage is that Isaac has put himself in the place of God. 
What if Isaac had said this? What if he read this way? Isaac was old and he called to Esau his older son and he said to him, Now look, I've grown old and don't know the day of my death, so let's the two of us go together to the mountain and build an altar to Yahweh. And we'll take along a ram and a goat and we'll sacrifice the food that Yahweh loves. And he will smell the sweet savor and then I will give you Yahweh's blessing before I die. That's what might have happened. But that isn't what happens. What happens in the passage is, well, let's just ask it this way. If you want to approach God in the Old Testament, and it's still true today in Christ, in being sinners, how can we approach God? What is the way in which you draw near to God? It's through sacrifice, right? What happens in a sacrifice? Just think through the steps. Animal is brought near, and then animal is killed, and then it's put on the fire and cooked as food for God. And God smells the sweet savor, and then God gives a blessing. Right? That's what happens every time. Smoke goes up, God smells it. Now look in this passage. Isaac says, you go get some food, kill it, cook it, I'll eat it, and I'll give you my blessing. In fact, not only is that the case, but he even insists on smelling. It emphasizes that Isaac brought his son near and smelled him and smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and see the smell, the smell of my son is like a... These are all sacrificial elements here. Isaac is demanding, requiring a sacrifice be made to him it's not directly, it's not like he said, I no longer believe in God, I'm going to insist on being treated as a God and being given a sacrifice. But at another level, that's basically what he's doing. It's his blessing. And so you approach him the same way you approach God, bring him food, and he eats it, and he smells it, and he gives the blessing. Now if that's the case, then somebody has to die. And the heart of this passage, I'm convinced, is Rebecca's willingness to sacrifice herself for her son when she says, let your curse be on me. So we'll explore that theme in more detail as we go. But I wanted to point that out here at the outset because I think if you already know that, then as we go through the passage, you can pick up some of these sacrificial elements. There are others as well that we'll comment on as we go. Now, What's the structure of this passage? You know the story. Isaac is old. It calls for Esau. Sends Esau out. Rebecca takes two kids. She makes food that tastes like Esau. Jacob's nervous about it. But Rebecca says, Your curse be on me, if there is a curse. And so he takes the food to Isaac. He deceives Isaac. Isaac gives him a blessing. And he doesn't say anything about Yahweh in this blessing, interestingly enough. And then Jacob goes out, Esau comes in, there's no blessing left for Esau. And then Esau decides that he's going to kill Jacob. And Rebekah sends Jacob away so that he doesn't get killed. And Isaac calls for Jacob and sends him away and gives him a more proper blessing. God's name show up much more in this blessing, this second one, 
because I think Isaac has repented and is closer to God when he gives the blessing the second time. So that's the contour of the passage. This is really a story of the fall of Isaac and the restoration of Isaac. Structurally, this passage is pretty much like Genesis 2 and 3. If we can lay it out, Adam is, in Genesis 2, the first thing, well, there's lots of things that happen, but God announces in Genesis 2, verse 9, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God puts Adam in the garden in verse 15 and gives him commands about the two trees. So the first thing we see is the two trees are presented. The second thing is we enter the garden. And the third thing we see is Adam gets a wife. And the fourth thing is that Satan attacks. And the fifth thing is we have a fall which takes place in connection with the two trees, choosing the wrong tree. Now, structurally, that's pretty much the same thing that happens in this narrative about Isaac. We have the two sons. They're presented to us in chapter 25. Chapter 25, we have the two sons, and we have a command regarding them. Then we go to Gerar, which means circle or lodging place. Coming into Gerar, I submit, is parallel to coming into the garden. Then we discover that Isaac has a wife. He comes in there, he says, I don't have a wife. But then it turns out later on that he does have a wife. So the wife appears after he goes into the garden. Then Satan attacks, or the theme of enmity between Satan and the woman comes up as he has to protect his wife. And he has to protect the garden. Satan attacks the garden to take it away. He attacks the wife. Isaac defends the garden, doing these wells of water here and there. And then finally, there's a fall in connection with these two trees. And these parallels help to explain to us what's going on in this passage. This isn't just some poor old guy who's confused. This is a recapitulation of the fall of man in another context to show us more aspects of it. And the contrast is that Adam rebels as a son who disobeys his father. That's his failing. The father says, don't eat this food, it's not good for you. He tells the kids what to eat, and they disobey. Whereas Isaac sins as a father, making the wrong choices of his son. Adam's is a sinful act against a father. Isaac's is a sinful act against his son. Sinful act of a father against a son. And it's interesting that in the Isaac story, when Isaac is a son, when he's young, he does great. He carries the wood up the mountain, submits to the knife, is willing to die. As a son, he's a righteous man. But when he grows old and becomes a father, he fails as a father, which is what Abraham didn't do. Abraham didn't fail as a father. Now Isaac, if we think about this historically, Abraham has a life, and that life is supposed to be passed on to Isaac, but Isaac fails. Isaac fails as a father. So Isaac has to be replaced by Jacob. And Jacob will succeed as a father 
in exactly the ways that Isaac fails. Jacob always favors the righteous sons and condemns the wicked sons. Well, Jacob's going to have 12 sons, but when his sons sin, he condemns them. The sons that are righteous, he blesses. In fact, we go all the way down to the end of the book, and we have the blessing of Jacob in chapter 49, where we have a whole list of righteous evaluations that stands in contrast to Isaac. Isaac intends to curse the righteous son and bless the wicked son. So Isaac's failure to be a righteous father and to bless the correct son is covered by Jacob's righteousness. Jacob does what Isaac doesn't do. Jacob has to become a replacement for Isaac. Now what does the word Jacob mean? It means replacement. And you think initially he replaces Esau, but actually he's replacing Isaac. He's replacing in a lot of ways, but primarily he's replacing Isaac. The word heal means replacement. Replacing Isaac, what does that mean? Well, we can see this as a direct fulfillment of Genesis 3. Not the final one, but it is a direct one. Genesis 3 says to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head, and you will bruise them in the heel. But heel means Jacob. Heel means replacement. You will bruise the seed in the replacement. Now we got Abraham, and who is the seed? Isaac. We know Isaac is the seed. He goes to the cross. He carries the wood up the hill. He lies down on the wood. But then let's substitute. A ram is substituted for him. So the serpent will bruise him in his replacement. Instead of Isaac being bruised, the ram is bruised. The ram is the replacement for Isaac. There are a lot of dimensions here. We'll talk about the foot wound in just a second. But ultimately, the seed of the woman... Abel, all the way down to Mary. There's a whole series of replacements here until we get to Jesus, who is the ultimate replacement or heel, who is bruised for all the others. But, in another way, the replacement for Isaac is Jacob, whose name means replacement. And what does Jacob wind up with at the end of his life? After he wrestles with God. He winds up with the limb. He's got the foot wound. So Jacob is the replacement for Isaac. You will bruise the seed. Seed is Isaac. You will bruise the seed in his replacement. And that's Jacob. Jacob suffers for Isaac's sins. Jacob suffers for Isaac's sins. He's a replacement for Isaac. Isaac should be punished for his sin, but instead Jacob is. Now how does that work out here? Isaac sins. Jacob pays the penalty for Isaac's sin. Let's see. What is Isaac's sin? I'm going to list two of them here. One is blasphemy and two is theft. Isaac blasphemes by putting himself in the place of God. The penalty for blasphemy is to be cut off or sent away. But instead of Isaac being sent away, Jacob is sent away. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. It's like Adam sinned and Adam was sent away. Isaac does good in protecting the garden in Gerar. So each one does a little bit better job. Isaac's fall is after that. So when Isaac is a son and a husband, he does good. But when he's a father, that's where his sin is located. He fails to be a new Abraham. He commits blasphemy and he's sent away, but he isn't. See, when Adam did that, he was cast out. Well, now Isaac has done it, and Isaac should be cast out. But it's not Isaac who gets cast out. It's Jacob who gets cast out. It's Jacob who has to suffer. Jacob has to leave his mother. Jacob has to leave his home. Jacob has to go into bondage for 14 years. Jacob suffers for Isaac's sin. The second thing Isaac commits is theft, which is going to require restitution. Now, how does he steal? This is also what Adam does, steal. How does Isaac steal? Well, does anybody know right off the bat? What were you supposed to do if you have two sons? You give the inheritance to the firstborn, who is in this case Jacob. God says Jacob is to be the firstborn. And you give a bunch of gifts and everything else to your other sons. That's what Abraham did. We already know this. Abraham gave his estate, the sheikdom, to Isaac. But to all of his other sons, he gave lavish gifts. But what does Isaac do in this chapter? When Esau comes and says, don't you have anything left for me? Isaac says, I have nothing left for you. I have given everything to him. So Isaac intended to steal even the small part that Jacob would have deserved under his system. He winds up stealing it from Esau. When you're dealing with doubles and twins, it can get complicated. Isaac was trying to steal everything from Jacob and give it all to Esau. What he actually did was he stole it all from Esau and gave it all to Jacob. That wasn't his intention, but that's what happened. Because everything is doubled and substituted here. Well now, Isaac is guilty of theft. So restitution has to be made. Does Isaac make restitution and give stuff to Esau? No. Who does? Jacob does. Jacob goes into a strange land, works as a slave, gets all this stuff, and then he gives it to Esau. So Jacob makes up for Isaac's sin. He makes the restitution Isaac owes. He goes and he's cast out as a scapegoat for the sin of Isaac, and he gets the foot wound that Isaac deserves. So that's an important part of his story here. The name Jacob, the fact that Jacob has to replace Isaac because of Isaac's sin. Jacob gets a foot wound. According to Genesis chapter 3, what does the serpent get? He gets a bruise on the head. Who has a head wound in this story? My answer person is gone. The rest of you will have to answer. <laughs> Who has the head wound here? Just think about it. Let's see, what's on the head? Well, there's ears. There's a nose. Anybody have a nose wound here? No. Isaac is blind. Isaac's blindness is a head wound. He's positioned as Satan in this overall narrative here because of his sin. And when we see Isaac's sin and what's going on, I think that recasts what Rebecca does. I think Rebecca is a tremendous hero in this passage because when it comes right down to it, Rebecca offers to die for Jacob. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So, 
In terms of the larger theological structure that's going on here, we have another fall. We have a playing out of the Son dying for the Father's sins. The Father has become like Satan. The Son suffers for his sins. He gets the foot wound. He makes the restitution. He's cast out. All the things that should have happened to Isaac because of his sins happen to Jacob because Jacob is his substitute. Jacob takes the punishment that Isaac deserves. And when Jacob is old, Jacob blesses and curses his sons the right way, which is the opposite of what Isaac does. And that explains to you something in Genesis. Well, it doesn't explain it, but it parallels something else. In Genesis, what are the three great patriarchal narratives? The Abraham narrative, the Jacob narrative, and the Joseph narrative. Remember, stories about Isaac are at the end of Abraham and the beginning of Jacob, but there is no Toledoth or these are the generations of for Isaac. There is no Isaac section. The Abraham section goes from chapter 12 to chapter 25 and a half. And the rest of 25 down to the end of 36 is the Jacob story, which we're studying. And then from 37 to the end is the Joseph story. Isaac, having failed, is left out. He's righteous at the beginning. He's sinful at the end. He repents. But there's no overall arc story for him. The Jacob story replaces the Isaac story. The things that Jacob does are the things that Isaac should have done. What else can we say by way of introduction? We talked last time, it's probably good to reiterate this. I read this passage and you heard the word son, father, brother, over and over and over again. This musical emphasis on repeated words. The unnecessary repetition of these words over and over again is part of the music of the passage. Now, let's do some numerology here. This is always fun. We can do this without notes in front of us. The word father in this chapter occurs 24 times. And the word son occurs 24 times. And the word brother occurs 12 times. And the word mother, referring to Rebecca, occurs four times. That's in chapter 27, 1 to 45. Verse 46 is separate. Well, actually, you can include it. But 1 to 45, you get these numbers. Now, this is no coincidence. In the first place, if you look it up in a concordance, you'll find that you don't have this kind of continual repetition of these words, father and son, my father and my son, over and over again in other chapters. It's definitely highlighted here. Father-son relationship is what's important here. And that's what we've already talked about for a few moments. Isaac fails as a father with reference to his sons. That's what he doesn't do right. Abraham does right. Abraham gives gifts to his sons, gives the stuff to Isaac, obeys God. Isaac fails in this relationship. And these numbers pointed out, and those are big time covenant numbers, 24 is twice 12, isn't it? Okay, if you add them together, you get 48. Divide Rebecca's 4 into 48, and you get 12. So the number 12 is all over the association of these words, the covenant number. And that shows you one of the major themes. Now, we can do the same thing here with these other names. Jacob occurs in this passage 14 times. Esau, 21 times. Isaac, 
twelve times, and Rebekah five times. Is there any relationship in these numbers? Who knows numbers in here now? What is 14? Factor it. 2 times 7. What's 21? 3 times 7. These are the brothers. Add them up and you get what? 5 times 7. Remember how to do that? I won't do the math. 14 plus 21 is 35 divided by 7 is 5. <laughs> That's the simpler way to do it. There's your 5. Now, Isaac's 12 is 5 plus 7. And these numbers occur in this passage and elsewhere, for instance, in Genesis 5. The story of the patriarchs before the flood. There are fives and sevens all over that passage. If you look back at it, you'll see them. Almost every patriarch lives 969 years. 9 is 2 plus 7. But they end it, always end in 5 or 7 or something related. Very common number, 5 plus 7 is 12. See, these numbers work. In other words, the numbers 7 and 5 are all over the proper names. So the common nouns, you got the number 12. Proper names, you got 5 and 7. And the other thing that's interesting here is that these sons are symbolized by their food. And the word for game, go out and get me some hunted game seven times. The word for delicacy, which is a very rare word, it only occurs two other places in the Bible, occurs six times. And the goat that is used to make the delicacy occurs one time, which is 14, which is 2 times 7. Now this food represents the boys. Two goats for the two boys. The food is what the boys give. The boys are 2 times 7 and 3 times 7. 5 times 7 plus 2 times 7 gives you what? 7 times 7. 49. So there is a very definite numerological structure in this passage. The words associated with Jacob and Esau, 49 times, 7 times 7. Two of them together, 5 times 7. Rebecca, 5 times not all passages have this, but very often they do. It's a literary device. You don't notice it until you start to count. But it shows you something about how the Bible is written and the literary artistry of it. Years ago, when we looked at Exodus, I pointed out to you that the first paragraph in Exodus, certain words repeated seven times. The next paragraph, certain words repeated seven times. In the third paragraph in Exodus, the word midwives is repeated seven times. These are not accidents. And all of these numbers here are not accidents. This is all about fathers and mothers and sons. And so we're dealing with Isaac as a father. We're dealing with the boys as sons. And we're dealing with Rebekah as a mother. She's the mother of the seed. And that's how she's acting. She's acting as the mother of the seed. Now the next thing we're going to start talk about here, I don't think we'll finish today, but that's okay because... These are deep structures in this passage, and it never hurts to come back to them again. But this emphasis on goats and flocks that starts here is real important, because a kid of the goats represents a child. Go to the flock and take me two fine goat kids from there. Later on, you've got a law in the Bible that says you shall not see the kid in his own mother's milk. Common way to cook. 
meat was to boil it up in milk. That made it soft. But you can't use a mother's milk in her own kid because there's a perversion there. And it has reference to human life. Mothers aren't to kill their own sons. When Jerusalem puts Jesus to death, that's the mother killing her son and a violation of that law. I know that's a bit much, but it's true. I have a whole essay on it. Now, these goats here are really important. The word Seir, which is one of the names for Esau, isn't it? Esau is Seir. And we said that means hairy. Esau was a hairy man. Seir. Well, what does she do here? She puts these goat skins on Jacob so that he'll feel hairy, right? And what you don't realize because you speak English instead of Hebrew is that the word Seir means hairy about three or four times in the Bible and it means goat about a hundred times in the Bible. So, the word Seir really means hairy goat. And if Esau is Seir, a hairy goat, it's even more appropriate for him to be signified by goat hair. In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, this word Seir is used for the two goats 14 times. In the Day of Atonement, you've got two goats. One of them is sent up to God and the other one is cast out. That's all building on this. Righteous and wicked sons. Two goats. Two kids of the goats. Remember, I doubt if you do, I mean, how can you remember all these details? But back in Genesis 25, when it says the elder will serve the younger, the word for younger was sa-ir, which is almost the same as sa-ir. Sounds just like it. It's a pun. The younger will be a hairy goat in the place of the older. This is the word for younger. And Seir is another name for Esau. So, this pun means Jacob will become the hairy goat instead of Esau. Now, what Rebecca does is combine the two. She takes two goats and she combines them to make one dish. Now, let's see how she does it. She does it in two ways. We got... Goat and goat. Remember I pointed out, we discussed this last time. She says, kill two goats and make a dish for Isaac. Now maybe Isaac was a great big huge fat guy and he needed two full goats. Well, I don't think so. We're talking about something symbolic here. Well, she was just getting the very best parts out of these goats. At any rate, we got two goats. And one is an Esau goat and one is a Jacob goat. And the meal is prepared with Jacob's meat and Esau's spices. So that the goat meat is spiced up to taste like venison or gazelle or tiger or whatever this food was that he was going to eat. So they're combined into one meal, into one dish representing both sons. By combining the two, Rebekah represents both sons together in the person of Jacob who is supposed to inherit and rule. Now, something else here. Rebekah is governing this flock. Her flock consists of her two sons. 
and she governs the flock well. She separates the bad goats from the good goats. Isaac is not ruling the flock well. And as we said just a few moments ago, Isaac's failure means that Jacob must replace him as the ruler of the flock. Jacob is going to replace Isaac. We've looked at several dimensions of that. Now we'll look at another one, how in terms of the flock, Isaac's doing a crummy job of ruling the flock. Rebekah's doing a good job, and the seed of the woman, who is Jacob, not Esau, is going to replace Isaac and do a good job with the flock. Now, Genesis 27, verse 9, when she says, Go to the flock and get me two fine goat kids, that is only the tenth time the word flock has appeared in Genesis. But as we read further down to the end of the Jacob story, the word flock occurs 38 times. Jacob goes to meet Rachel and she's got these flocks. And he waters her flocks. And then he cares for uh, Laban's flocks. And Laban lets him have some flocks. And so he gets some speckled flocks and some spotted flocks and some striped and polka dotted and paisley flocks. And then he takes his flocks with him. And Laban comes after him for his flocks. And he sends flocks over to Esau. Flock, 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 flock. All of a sudden the word appears all over the place. Jacob is governing a flock well. He's protecting it. He's increasing it. He's being very scientific. I mean, he puts these little pictures in front of the goats while they mate. I mean, what could be more scientific than that? So that as they look at polka dots, then the baby comes out polka dotted. Over here, the goat is looking at a plaid, and the baby comes out plaid. That's how you make your kids look a certain way. You're looking at something. If you total up all the words for sheep and goat and he-goat and ewe and lamb and flock, and you know in Hebrew there's at least a dozen words dividing up all this, there are 55 occurrences of those words in the Jacob story. Now, there's not only flocks that he's fooling with, but it's sheep and ewes and lambs and he-goats and she-goats and all the rest of them. And these words only occur a few times before. And in the Joseph narrative that comes after, the word flock only occurs 15 times. That is true. Joseph goes out and he does his father's flock. And they come to Egypt with their flocks. So there's still some association. The flock is still there. But it's not mentioned anywhere near as much. And what that tells you is, this is Rebecca and Isaac's flock. These two sons. And Jacob's flock are his sons. He's got a lot more of them. But it's still the same motif. It's the same motif. The flock, the sheep and the goats, Represent people. We know that from the sacrificial system, but you gotta see it here as well. Don't have the sacrifices over here and the narratives over here. The same imagery pervades both of them. Rebecca has two goats. Jacob has twelve goats. And a little ewe lamb named Tamar. And he has other daughters as well, as a matter of fact. From what we can read, it talks about his sons and his daughters. Unless that means daughters-in-law. He may have had other daughters as well, but he's got flocks. He has to govern his flocks. Isaac does a bad job of governing his flock, which isn't very big. Jacob's given a lot more, and he does a good job. It's something that's coming in here. Because Isaac does not do a good job, Jacob has to come in and do a better job. And that's why all of a sudden, the word flock and sheep and goat and all these words start to appear all over the place in a very repetitious fashion. When we get over to the chapters where these things occur, like in chapter 30, 
you're going to find the same kind of thing we found here in this chapter where it's your father, your son, your brother, your father, my father, my son, his son, his father, his son, his father, his son, his mother, his brother, his brother, his This repetition, we're going to find flock, sheep, goat, flock, 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 sheep, goat, you, sheep, flock. Unnecessary repetition to establish the point that, hey, we're talking about flocks here. And we're really talking about sons as well as the animals that they're associated with. Now, in particular, the goats represent the sons. Goat is parallel to son, especially the kid. Even in English, the word kid means both baby goat and human child. And for once, our language is quite accurate in that regard. A kid is a human child or a goat child, and they're precisely parallel. Rebekah's two goats relate to Jacob and Esau. The skin of a goat covers Jacob so that Jacob is a goat. But more than that, Jacob's spotted and speckled goats that he acquires under Laban's rule relate to the sons that he's also having at the same time. But more than that, in chapter 37, verse 31, when the brothers throw Joseph in the pit, they take his coat and they dip it in the blood of a kid of the goats. And then when Judah sleeps with Tamar thinking she's a prostitute, what does he promise to send to her? A kid of the goats. That's in 38, verses 17 to 20. She says, well, how are you going to pay me for this? He says, I'll send you a kid of the goats. And she says, well, how do I know? And he says, well, and I'll give you my signet. So he takes off his little cylinder seal and his staff, which is the pin that goes through the cylinder seal so you can roll it out and the cord that's around his neck that holds it. And he gives that to her, and then it says he sent a kid of the goats to her, but nobody could find her. Now, you got to just be realistic here, folks. <laughs> Sending her a kid of the goats is parallel to impregnating her with two kids. He sent kids to her, and she comes forth with two children, actually, which are parallel to the kid of the goats. And I think we'll stop there because the next thing we have to do is really go into this just a little bit more. But this relationship of a pair of goats to twin sons is developed later on. Judah's one goat becomes the twin sons, Perez and Zerah, just as Jacob and Esau are signified by twin goats. Joseph, who is represented by a twin goat, we just saw that, the blood of a kid, goat kid, not twin goat. Joseph is signified by a kid of the goats. He has two sons, another doubling. But then in Leviticus 16, we'll come back to this, the sins of Israel, the sons of Israel, are put on two goats on the Day of Atonement. And Leviticus 16 starts off by saying, right after the death of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, we have this ritual about two goats. So this business of two sons, two goats, two kinds of people, Cain and Abel, Jacob Esau, Perez Zerah, Ephraim and Manasseh, two goats on the Day of Atonement, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. All these pairs and doubles are real important. And of course what they had to do with is the wicked and the righteous. At the end, some are on the right hand, some are on the left hand. But this imagery is real strong in this passage. And one of the main reasons I want to expose it a little bit is so that you see again the sacrificial aspects of it. Bringing these goats to Isaac 
It's because Isaac has put himself in the place of God and he wants to be treated like God and he wants to be offered a sacrifice that he can eat and smell and then he'll give the blessing. Because it's his blessing. And so you approach him through sacrifices and it winds up being these goats. But somebody has to die. And that'll be Rebecca. She will give her life or at least offer to him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm